I am happy to announce that the winner is All About Eve. Parasite. Kramer versus Kramer. Chicago! West Side Shark. The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. One flew over the cuckoo. Shakespeare in Love. May I have the envelope, please? It is April 3rd. 1978 at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in beautiful downtown Los Angeles. It is the 50th annual Academy Awards honoring the films of 1977. We've got a host of huge, big, 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 big stars here in the house tonight, including the Master of Ceremonies, Mr. Bob Hope himself. And uh, we got a lot to cover, so let's just get right to it. The envelope, please. And the winner... Is Annie Hall, Charles H. Joplin. Welcome back to The Envelope, Please, Everybody, a podcast where we watch and discuss every Oscar winner for Best Picture in chronological order. We're your hosts. I'm Sam. I'm Rance. And let's get into this year. So we are talking about 1977 Rance. Uh, talk to me about this ceremony. This is a big year. This is a huge, huge year. This is one of the... Um... I mean, the 50th is like the biggest anniversary you can get, right? So Yeah, I mean, so far, um, I think. Yeah, for sure. And um, they really, really went all out for this ceremony. The opening number has this very elaborate situation with Debbie Reynolds singing and dancing and being just an all-around amazing entertainer that she is. And yeah, then, um, I mean, of course, and then they bring out all these past Oscar winners on stage all at the same time. Yes, right at the beginning. Yes. Um fantastic. And there's like they're kind of a tiered they're on these tiered steps, if you will. Uh-huh. Um <clears throat> excuse me. And um on the steps themselves, you can see they have the names of every best picture winner and every uh actor and actress Oscar winner just kind of like embedded in the steps that's part of the stage set that's incredible um oh, wow. all very gold lots of big oscars um and you got of course bob hope presiding over the ceremony for the very very last time he's done it uh, 20 some odd times up to this point um he will make a couple more appearances on the oscars but this is le- his last time hosting the show no one better do the 50th of course and oh, yeah um, that makes perfect sense perfect sense and he comes out right after all the previous Oscar winners leave and Debbie Reynolds is done with her musical number. And then he, everyone's applauding. He's looking back at the winners as they leave the stage. And then he turns around and he says, Now nah, they're wonderful. They all have their Oscars. But are they happy? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Anyway, he tells a lot of great jokes. I the monologue and the opening number are all on um are all on YouTube. I highly recommend watching it. Every single uh category this year has uh typically a combination of like a newer star and an older star. Mm-hmm. Um so you kind of get that um uh you get a lot of nostalgia and a lot of new stuff going on because it's the year of Star Wars, uh, R2D2 and C3PO work with Mark Hamill to present at one point. Um, <laughs> you sure, also sure. have, yeah. I mean, of course, you have, you know, John Travolta's there to represent, like, new Hollywood. And then you also have, like, 
uh, Olivia de Havilland and Betty Davis and um, and Farrah Fawcett, you know, and <laughs> right and Fred Astaire. Cicely Tyson presents Best Director with King Vidor, you know, a great director of the silent and early sound era. You know, Janet Gaynor sure, presents sure. Best Actress with Walter Matthau. You know, it's just kind of the most random uh, assortment of people that you could possibly ask for. But my favorite combination uh, presenting the Art Direction Award is Greer Garson and Henry Winkler. Um, <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, the <laughs> most random combination of people. You know, at this point, Henry Winkler was not just, you know, Fonzie on Happy Days, but he uh, had started making movies, you know, and I guess during the summers between shooting episodes of Happy Days. And uh, so he was seen as maybe like a next big movie star. And, uh, and Greer Garson comes out with him. And, uh, of course, Art Direction was won by none other than Star Wars, which I highly recommend that you go online and watch this clip just so you can hear the way that Greer Garson says the words Star Wars. It's literally... <laughs> well, you know what, Sam? You just edited in the clip right there. Star Wars! I, so I, I will. Can. It is on YouTube, easy to find. Uh, so it was a really, it was a really big time uh, ceremony. Lots of uh, big stars in attendance, and uh, really just Oscar being its most fun and gaudy. Oh yeah, and also this is a pretty political year for acceptance speeches at the Oscars. Mm -hmm. We cannot, we cannot move forward without talking about a one Vanessa Redgrave and her. Very controversial acceptance speech. I would say up until this point, this is probably about as fired up as the audience gets. Also, like mm -hmm. people outside, you know, picketing against her. She has this acceptance speech where it starts off fine and then it starts to fall into, you know, the territory that some winners can get into where they want to make a big political speech. And it just so happened that the audience really wasn't behind her. And I think it comes down to her phrasing and the words she chose to use. I think there was some confusion that went on. She she mentions that there is a bunch of, you know, quote unquote, Zionist hoodlums, her words that she chooses to say uh, that she's referencing who were standing outside the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, who were burning her effigy and were, you know, um, protesting against her nomination for Julia. What people didn't realize is that she was referring to members of the Jewish Defense League who were standing outside. And she wasn't just referring to, you know, all Jewish people. It was a very specific group of yeah. extremists who were standing outside that she was referencing. I mean, but when she on its them surface, into, it does, it, on its surface, it does kind of automatically make you think like oh this is a little this is anti-semitic what is she saying you know exactly and, exactly yeah. she didn't choose her words very carefully <laughs> at all um did she did she uh later clarify her statement in some way so I was reading a bunch of articles, and whenever people have brought this up when they've interviewed her, well, first of all, she sometimes won't even talk about it at all because she's said in the past that she was frustrated that people didn't understand what she meant, but then she also didn't really clarify what she meant, you know? So I mm -hmm. think that's kind of on her. Um, yeah. But she has since then said, you know, she was referring to that group of people standing outside, 
you know, but, you know, she chose to call them Zionist hoodlums instead of just saying Mm -hmm. the members of the Jewish Defense League outside are protesting me. And she wasn't, you know, trying to say for all Jewish people, you know, she was trying to be pro-Palestine and not just, you know, anti-Jewish, which is, you know, it got mixed up. How interesting, too, that we're recording this today, which, uh, you know, currently in the news, this will air a few weeks from now, but uh, currently in the news, there is uh, quite a bit of um, turmoil happening in uh, in, uh, Israel slash Palestine, so. Yeah, absolutely. um, Yeah. Yeah, I Um, mean, the issues that that Vanessa Redgrave was, you know, talking about are still issues today, you know, these are, and they've been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, so she was trying to make a political statement, it was... I want to think that she had the right, you know, reasons for saying it. It just did not come out well at all. And this is just, you know, it's kind of like a, uh, uh, um, this is like a, a warning for future winners, you know, like sometimes <laughs> it's best to just keep your mouth shut, thank the people who put you up there and leave it at that. Because later on in the night, screenwriter Patty Shayevsky comes out to present the screenplay awards and he goes off on Vanessa Redgrave basically just saying I would like to suggest to Miss Redgrave that her winning an Academy Award is not a pivotal moment in history does not require a proclamation and a simple thank you would have sufficed hats off to him he's right this is this is a night for movies and movie making we don't need to hear your politics yeah, well, you know, if only she had been giving her speech in the, at the 2021 Oscars, because then she would have had five or six or seven minutes to... Yeah, um, exactly. They would not have cut her <laughs> off. God. They would not have cut her off. Uh, um, might have been able to explain it better. Um, <laughs> yeah, quite possibly. Uh, I kid. I kid. Don't cancel me, ABC. I will continue to watch <laughs> the show. Um, yes. All right. So... Uh, Let's, yes. let's let's get, down get to into business. let's talk about these movies. Let's do it. So, do you have any snubs for 1977? You know, I don't know if snub is the right word, uh, but um, I will say this is a weird period in Disney history. Okay, um, okay, because you know it's like after Walt Disney has passed away, and it's before the Renaissance of uh the late 80s early 90s um and you end up having some really interesting movies that come out in this period that you know had uh they been released when perhaps a best animation oscar existed you know Mm -hmm. maybe they would have gotten some recognition uh but they aren't really remembered the way that other disney films like little mermaid or jungle book are um, yeah. And I really, really like The Rescuers. I just want to say yeah. that. Um, oh, yeah, that's with, a great uh, movie. Isn't it, though? And um, I I will say I, I do like it better than the Best Picture winner. But um, <laughs> if that, I don't know if that means <laughs> it's a Best Picture nominee. I highly doubt it. But I just wanted to say, I, um, you know, this is in a period before animation is really getting anything outside of maybe an original song Oscar. And I wanted to highlight it because I do think it is a really um, good movie. I also would like to say my personal favorite James Bond movie comes out this year. Um, it's called The Spy Who Loved Me. And, um, and it is only 
nominated for um, art direction and uh, original song, which somehow it does not win original song. Yes, You Light Up My Life is a song that people know. You light up my life. But Nobody Does It Better is maybe the best Bond song. Like heaven above me, the spy who loved me is keeping all my secrets safe tonight. Uh, by none other than Marvin Hamblish doing the music. Um, and then the singer is Carly Simon, who's amazing. So I think that the movie The Spy Who Loved Me, which is my favorite James Bond movie and easily the best Roger Moore James Bond film of the, uh, I think, seven that he made, um, has what I think is the best argument for a stunt Oscar, um, maybe in any film ever. There is a scene Ooh, yes, where yes, yes. right at the beginning of the movie, it's the opening before the credits, where... Um, where James Bond is uh, being pursued on skis in, you know, the snow-capped mountains. Uh, I believe it was actually filmed <laughs> in Canada. Right. Um, but, um, it, you know, the bad guys get taken out, but he's still on the skis going so fast that he can't really stop right now, and there's a big cliff coming up, a cliff that has a drop that seems to be, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of feet and um, you just see the cameras just showing you that cliff coming up, coming up, come up, coming up. The suspense is building. And then he just launches off of the clip, off of the cliff. Um, and the music stops. It's total silence. You just hear a little bit of faint wind. And the stunt double, you know, who's playing James Bond uh, in this single take without cuts just starts kind of flipping in the air he gets both skis off and drops the and drops the little uh what do they call the ski pole things i can't think of oh lord uh like they're the little the things that they hold yeah, the on little canes to. the yeah, little yeah, ski yeah. canes whatever you <laughs> Yeah. such a professional skier um <laughs> and he drops all of that stuff while doing you know several flips in the air and you think like what's gonna happen and then it's revealed that the whole time he had a parachute and he hits the button the parachute comes out and there's this union jack british f flag and the second you see the flag the music starts ba -na -ba -na -ba -na -na. And you go <laughs> into the opening credits, uh, which is the nice. beautiful Carly Simon song, Nobody Does It Better. And it's just like one of the great openings of any movie ever. And the stunt work is just insane. Uh, I recommend this clip is also on YouTube. Go and watch it and uh, and tell me that stunt people should not have um should not have their own oscar category absolutely i couldn't agree more i think that should be something that gets introduced hopefully soon i've got a couple of snubs they're for the same movie i mm. think it is absolutely ridiculous that close encounter to the third kind is not nominated for best picture especially <laughs> with the likes of the goodbye girl and the turning points you can take either of those movies out close encounters is leaps and bounds better than both of those films especially since spielberg gets a director knob this year 
I just think are it's you, are you very also weird. saying that maybe one of those movies should have been replaced with the rescuers is that what you're i I feel like (laughs) am okay with that yes i i i can hear that argument and i agree with that argument absolutely i would be totally fine with that but i think it's just Uh. stupid that close encounters is not nominated for best picture and then to further go with that i also feel that Richard Dreyfuss's nomin- or his win for Goodbye Girl should be swapped out with Close Encounters, but I would put him in the supporting actor category. I think his work in Close Encounters is way more impressive than his work in the Goodbye Girl, which is just a middle-of-the-road, boring rom-com. Do you think that it was like a collective situation where it was like, um, yes, we're giving you this because you've had such a good year? Oh, yeah, and, like, don't get me wrong. The Goodbye Girl in 1977, it was the first rom-com to make over $100 million at the box office. So, I mean, this is a big movie. It was big in 1977. Um, So I understand the love that it got. I get it. But looking Mm -hmm. back on it now and watching this movie again now, it is – there is nothing special about this movie. And Marsha Mason is so annoying. I don't know. I don't get her character at all. The chemistry's off. It doesn't make it... uh, I hate this movie. I hate it. And I hate that Richard Dreyfuss wins his Oscar for it because I think it's ridiculous. I would put him in supporting for Close Encounters. Okay. Um, Oh, which is interesting because you'd be taking away uh, Jason Robard's second Oscar. Yes, I would because Jason Robards does slim to nothing in Julia. He does. Not that it's bad. It's just not good enough. Not for you. You know what I mean? Like, I don't understand his win let alone his nomination either he's fine and this is not this is not a knock on julia for me because i like no julia. not at all i like julia um, a lot as well this is just not the do you think it's because he's playing highlight. a do you do you think it's because he's playing a real person do you think it's because uh, i mean you know probably dashiell hammett's a, a like yeah is on, in his own right some type of film personality and they're like you yeah. know I can see that i think they just that love the... jason robards you know i mean jason robards is a huge actor's actor right you know mm-hmm. he's a legend on the stage and his transition into film went you know perfectly i mean he's a great actor so i i think that they just wanted to award him again you know i think he's beloved by the acting uh and the academy members so a really important yeah. question sam do you mm-hmm. think that lauren bacall was jealous that all her husbands won oscars <laughs> absolutely <laughs> poor girl <laughs> i mean and like she's like it's bad enough that humphrey wins one for the wrong movie but yeah. then jason robards wins two and only one of them's acceptable <laughs> yeah no i i agree i agree uh, yeah, I guess well, those are my only snubs. It's for Close Encounters. I just think it needed way more love than it yeah. got. I um I, I, I know that we 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 typically stray away from this, but I just want to ask you a question. We don't usually get supporting actor categories that are this interesting, okay? Mm-hmm. Um yeah. so I just want to ask you, you know, we have two nominations for Julia, okay? Um, mm-hmm. which is interesting in its own right. And we also have the incredibly iconic Alec Guinness performance as Obi-Wan. Do you yes. think that do you think that, that should have been the winner, or do you think his previous win just kind of negates that? Ooh, you know, okay, this is actually kind of funny. I recently rewatched the first Star Wars well, mm-hmm. episode 
uh, four, we should say. Um, it's the first Star Wars. Let's. Like... It is the first Star Wars. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I did a rewatch of the yeah. whole series actually over quarantine, and and what I realized is that Alec Guinness really isn't that spectacular in Star Wars. I think. Okay. I think the character of Obi Wan has sort of superseded his performance in this first movie. Um, you know, like he dies very quickly. And there's mm-hmm. no real, like, moment moment for him. I think he just now becomes, like, synonymous with, you know, use the force. And it's, you know, this phrasing that he... He has a lot of very, like, iconic lines, right? That now are just uh, normal, like, everyday lexicon for us to use and in conversation. His, his presence is so mm-hmm. important it is, throughout it the is. series. You know, and just his name. His name alone is like, oh, Obi-Wan, you know. Um, Do you think, uh, since you've recently watched it, it, he's the only nomination for acting Mm -hmm. for Star Wars. Do you think that there was somebody who should have been nominated who wasn't? No, not at all. (laughs) Star Wars is not a performance film. (laughs) No, I I think I completely agree. I think everybody pretty much does their job, and that's... and like, Star nothing... Wars is a spectacle. It is a spectacle, and it's it was rewarded, you know, justly. Yeah, I think that its nominations are are correct. Um, but anyway, all right. Um, let's, yeah, let's go on to spotlights. Um, I'll let you take the take okay. the reins. Do you want to talk okay, about okay, Close okay. Encounters? Is that what's going to happen? You know what? I'm I'm not going <laughs> to talk about Close Encounters because we'll get into that later when we discuss Best Picture. I want to highlight a different film that I love from this year. The movie is called Equus. And this received nominations for lead actor Richard Burton and supporting actor for Peter Firth. And did it get a screenplay nomination? It did get a screenplay nomination. Thank God. Uh, I love this movie. I love this play even more. I did a lot of work on this play back when I was in acting school. And this is such a unique story. For those who haven't seen Equus um, or don't know about it, it is about a psychiatrist who's played by Richard Burton, and he is tasked with helping out a young boy played by Peter Firth who recently and brutally blinded six horses in a stable that he was working for. And then Mm. it goes on to dissect why he did this, you know, what's going on with this kid, um, and in doing so... Peter Firth's psychiatrist, or Richard Burton's psychiatrist character, comes to learn more about himself. Um, but it is so weird. And this is also a Sidney Lumet movie as well. So we're, we've been talking about Sidney Lumet quite a bit these last few years. And I don't think he was necessarily snubbed in the best director field for this movie. But he's so smart in what he does in translating this from stage to screen. It works really well, mainly because I think they pretty much take the play word for word. And I think the playwright even um, adapted his own script. Yeah, Peter Schaefer, he even adapted his own script. And he, Sidney Lumet just lets it all unfold. What he does so well is he uses the long shot in this movie where for minutes on end, it is just, you know, framed to see Richard Burton from head to like his you know mid chest and he's just talking to the camera monologuing because the play has a lot of lengthy monologues in it where we where we hear what Richard Burton is thinking out loud the sort of like soliloquies going on and you keep that in the movie which you know sometimes can be very uncinematic 
But in this movie, it works because we really want to know what Richard Burton is thinking. Um, and as he gets deeper and deeper into all of his therapy sessions, he's discovering that the boy is worshipping this god called Equus. And he believes that this god lives inside all horses. Uh, and he even goes so far as to, like, you know, he bridles himself and whips himself in his own room. He rides horse at night naked just to receive some kind of sexual pleasure. So as Richard Burton is listening and he begins to appreciate this boy's passion for the way that he worships and how he cares for this god, Equus, he begins to examine his own passion in life and how he's kind of been living a passionless life. So he wonders whether it's ethical to take that passion away from this boy, um, which would then kind of just leave him lifeless, you know? So it's, mm. it's a really interesting take on religion, um, what drives you forward as a person. And, in, you know, if, if something stimulates one person, is it okay for us to say that's bad? You know, can we mm. take that away from them? It's, yeah, it's really, really interesting. Uh, I think this is kind of a, a hidden gem of this year, and the performances are very, very strong. So you asked me, supporting actor, who I think should take it. Peter Firth would be my my pick. I think what he does is in the role of, I think his name is Alan in the film. He's so good. I love it. Um, okay, quick question here. Richard yeah. Burton, this is his last Best <laughs> Actor nomination of his, you know, multi-Oscar losing streak. Um, do you think that, um, I know that we don't necessarily have a problem with Richard Dreyfuss having an Oscar regardless of the film, because, you know, it is Richard Dreyfuss and he's great, but do you think that this is where, uh, Richard Burton should have won? Oh, for leading actor, you know, I'm kind of looking at the other nominations here as well, and yeah, I don't hate it. I think this is the best Richard Burton has been since you know, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, another yeah. adaptation of a famous play. Um, there's just something about the way Richard Burton spews off dialogue. I don't know. It's it's so gripping, and he doesn't have to do a damn thing. So, yeah, I would give it to him. This would be a fun, you know, double win between these two performances because they are the standouts, and I would have loved that. Yeah, totally. All for, I'm all in for Richard Burton. You bet. <laughs> um, yep. all in for richard burton i love it um uh okay uh well that's fantastic i um what you did such a great job explaining that and i don't even know uh how to continue <laughs> on with my life at this point um <laughs> uh i i would um briefly like to spotlight uh one of i think our both of us consider one of our favorites uh jane fonda Mm. um yes 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 the reason i'd like to jane to spotlight jane fonda isn't just because of julia but because of this point in jane fonda's career now jane fonda of course very very famously um you know there are people who really don't like her who still call her hanoi jane and she um, had this hot streak in the late 60s and early 70s, won an Oscar for Clute, uh, was in a couple of other really good movies, and then she had this hugely controversial incident happen where she was photographed on top of some uh, military um, weaponry 
that belong to the um, North Vietnamese. Okay. Um, and that picture, um, which she, in the situation, was not really aware of what she was sitting on or that anyone was taking a photo, um, ended up making her look as if she was not just anti-war, but was somehow, like, uh, in bed with, you know, communist Vietnam. Um, and, uh, this led to a lot of people really, really hating her. Um, and because of that incident, no matter how many times she apologized or explained, uh, she had this period of eclipse in the mid-70s where she didn't really have any big movies released, um, you know, she had a version of the play A Doll's House come out, um, and then didn't make a movie for three years. Then she made a movie called The Blue Bird, which is a disaster of a film, uh, that was made in Russia, um, with, uh, a great cast. It's, like, Elizabeth Taylor and Ava Gardner and, um, uh, Cicely Tyson and... <laughs> You know, this, like, ridiculous cast directed by George Cukor, but it's one of the most, like, notorious behind-the-scene productions ever. You can only find a version with subtitles online that's in poor quality, and it's it's this one of the worst things you'll ever see. And apparently part of the reason <laughs> it was so bad was because um, they worked out this deal. It was the first joint production between Soviet Russia and um, and the United States, so it was like this, like like piecemeal deal thing but the entire crew was russian and did not speak english and so george cukor couldn't communicate with this crew oh (laughs) and and like there were all these other little complication issues that came about and it ended up ended up just being like this total it's a horrible movie like i i'm not even kidding i i've watched it and it's just so bad and apparently jane fonda was in her like uber um marxist phase at this point because she was walking around trying to like uh ask the russian crew members about uh whether or not they had read you know uh karl marx's (laughs) books and stuff and they and like apparently someone was quoting like quit trying to convert us jane we're already communist um (laughs) god and uh anyway that that whole thing was happening and so jane fonda had like a few years kind of like hidden in the woods discovering herself and um and then she decided to make her hollywood comeback you know and uh this is something that you know she's she was literally about as hated as any individual actor ever has been and there are still people who hate her to this day for the things that happened 50 some odd years ago and or almost 50 years ago i should say um and she was very very smart the first movie she has coming back is fun with dick and jane um (laughs) which is a uh very fun comedy uh with george seagal that made a lot of money it was very popular and then she came out with julia and julia kind of sets the tone for where she's going to go with her career over the next few years because she forms her own production company and she has the um has the initiative to only make movies that say something 
you know, yes. and she's going to hone all of her activism, all of her, um, all of what she was doing in the early 70s, and she's going to focus it into a message that is more easily digestible by audiences where she doesn't have to explain herself so much, basically. Um, so you're kind of seeing an artist with years and years and years um, in the trenches, you know, fighting and a lot of times being misunderstood, but always trying to make the world better. I really want to make that clear. Jane Fonda is an incredible humanitarian. Mm -hmm. um, and then she hones that into movies that are entertaining that have a message and julia is the beginning of that because julia is a movie about um it, it whether or not it's a true story is up to debate um right. it does have real people in it lillian hellman is the main character played by jane fonda she professes that she did this daring mess uh daring mission where she um carried important information to the Nazi resistance to her friend, her childhood friend, Julia, whether or not Julia actually existed or whether or not she was a uh, invention of the author Lillian Hellman is up for debate. Lillian Hellman, we've actually covered things that she made, that she wrote before. Uh, the Little Foxes was hers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So thank yep. you for giving us that Betty Davis performance. She also yes, forever did, grateful. Uh, forever grateful. She also did the amazing The Children's Hour. Um, you know, wrote the original uh, play that then became these three. That then later became uh, The Children's Hour with Audrey Hepburn and uh, uh, Shirley MacLaine. Um, but um, this uh, this movie. It is really, really good, but the thing, it also gives us the film debut of Meryl Streep, which is very, very important. Yes, um, God. Sorry, I just realized that I needed to mention that before you did, because I <laughs> wanted to take away that moment from you. Um, <laughs> I figured you'd take care of that. <laughs> um, this, just, just be warned, guys. There is nary a year without a... Meryl Streep nomination from here into perpetuity and <laughs> and Sam will think Meryl should have won every single one of those years there are some days when I myself think I'm overrated and let's just say I have my spotlights covered from here on out <laughs> it'll be it'll be 1999 and we'll be taught he'll be talking for 10 minutes about music of the heart and I'll be like <laughs> What is going on, Sam? Um, uh, yeah, true. <laughs> um, <laughs> but Julia, <laughs> in addition to those important points, in addition to giving us Meryl Streep and having a well-told story that may just be a complete fabrication of somebody wanting to make themselves into a hero, not really sure, is, a, is the beginning of the more culturally conscious jane fonda um and the great thing about jane fonda is that in addition to being uh an activist and being a um advocate for social justice she is also a um and more currently climate justice i should say um she is also just an incredible actress and uh julia is probably one of her better performances yeah i love julia i think it's great and it's 
I feel like it's way more suspenseful than you might think going into the movie. This movie is high on suspense, and yeah, I think it's a great movie. It's a great performance. I also love that it's um, that it's female driven. You know, yeah. J- Jane Fonda also produced movies that really gave women a spotlight during a time when um, that was not necessarily what most movies were doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as uh, as I, we will soon discuss. <laughs> yes, very true. So say. let's actually let's get into our main event. We're going to talk about the Ugh. best picture winner of 1977, which is Annie Hall. Seems like old times. Quick plot summary for those who haven't seen this movie. It tells the story of Alvy Singer, who's played by Woody Allen. Uh, as he reminisces on his relationship with his ex-girlfriend, Annie Hall, he's trying to figure out what went wrong. Very simple. But this movie is very complex in its construction. So, this is what I want to talk about first with you, Rance. Let's get this out of the way because, let's be honest, this movie is so it's it's constructed so well it's nothing short of miraculous it's very very inventive it's very creative my hot take is this is a good movie and it makes me mad what's your hot take um i i think that we're probably in a similar in a similar place here annie hall you cannot deny that annie hall is a well-made film i feel like that is that is the top line um, I completely understand the critical praise. I think that it is difficult to look back on this movie um, because because of who we know Woody Allen to be now. Yes. Um, and but beyond that, I will say I, as well constructed as the movie is, I don't care for the Woody Allen character on the surface. Like I yeah. find him to be very annoying and i i think that he does have this tendency to project his um his neuroses onto other people and you're just kind of watching you're almost watching a therapy session honestly oh yeah well the the problem is he doesn't take responsibility for any of his neuroses he just like he spews it out and then he believes that to be fact and refuses to like except that he's like affecting people you know and then that drives them crazy like i just you feel bad for diane keaton in this movie right like you feel bad for annie hall you but you know it's kind of (laughs) funny because i don't know if the movie if the movie as it's written and constructed even wants us to feel bad for her because i think we feel bad for her because we are who we are you know what i'm saying but true true. the movie tends to I mean, like, it's called Annie Hall, but the movie is about Alvy, you know? Yeah. And and Alvy is is just Woody Allen with a different name. You know, he's even a, a TV writer in the film, you know? Yeah, he's literally um, Woody Allen. Yeah. He's literally Woody Allen. And, and, you know, you sit... The whole movie is about him complaining, and... Um, you see everything from his perspective. You see Annie completely from his perspective. And and so I don't really know 
Like, you know, the way that Annie is presented to me is that she's some kind of flighty girl who doesn't really know what she wants, who's afraid of spiders. And, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it can have fun with a lobster. Like, I, it, like, all of that's, all of that's great, but, you know, I don't, I, you know, and then he's, like, so self-congratulatory. He's like, I caught her coming out of, you know, whatever movie they're watching she's watching with her new boyfriend at the end of the film and it's like look at how intelligent i made her you know look at look at all this wisdom i imparted on her and there's something so pompous about the overlying tone and that is no you're right that is the thing i think yeah real quick i want to say i think what you're getting at here is that he is taking the credit for annie hall finally blossoming as a human where, in mm-hmm. fact, the only reason she was able to finally blossom is because she got away from him. But I think he yes. believes in himself that he, like, gave her the, the the tools to become who she is now, which is a fucking lie. The only reason that she's doing well is because they did, in fact, break up. <laughs> yeah. And I will say, like, before I, before I knew anything about Woody Allen's personal life, I had seen Addie Hall, and I had a similar feeling about it. And... Here's the deal. Again, I cannot fault the construction of this movie. My issue is with him and his character. Yeah. And and so it's like, this is a good movie, but I have massive problems with Alvi, the character. Um, in fact, like, I wrote notes as I was watching this, and I said things like, Woody is a nuisance. He's such mm-hmm. a narcissist. Woody mm-hmm. is annoying. Alvi is 100% real Woody. Why yes. is Annie into him? La di da, la di da, la la. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> Absolutely. Why? I don't understand why anybody <laughs> really is into him. I mean, I, you know, besides the obvious, he's a a guy who has a lot of power and sway in Hollywood. I'm talking about Woody Allen, not the character of Alvy, but like Woody yeah, Allen yeah. in general. Like, you know, he is a huge Hollywood figure. But I'm just, yeah, I don't know. I don't. Uh, you're right. Like he. I think this is the closest in any Woody Allen film that he comes to just writing himself. I feel like this is where there's almost no separation here between character and real person. And I um, think that's part of what makes this interesting because, you know, yeah. there's 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 lines in this movie that, I, that almost foreshadow the negative things we will later find out, you know? Yes. Because uh, his obsession with, like, sexualizing little girls, yes. like, it's... It's and uncomfortable. Like, oh, the scene in the classroom towards the beginning. Yes, I wrote is that really down too. Uncomfortable, and then he actually says something about someone being so horrible they're a notch underneath a child molester at one Ugh. point, which is just interesting foreshadowing. And I just like, what is it about him making the female characters just totally fawn over? his sexual abil- ability, you know, like, yeah. um, I, d- did you, did you take note of that at all? Because what is it? Is it, is it Shelley Duvall's character that, um, Oh yeah. That just is like talking about how great he was in bed. And I'm like, I, I mean, like maybe he is, maybe he isn't, but why is this here? <laughs> like, this seems like an ego trip. You wrote this line. <laughs> You know, and that's where it's interesting, and it's it's where I can't really say it's a bad. I, it is a good movie because this is ultimately a psychological exploration of a person, and you could interpret it 
interpreted him as him remembering these things in a way that makes himself look better. But he's also such a nuisance the whole time. You know? Right. And that's kind of where I was um, a, a topic I wanted to ask you about as well is do you think we're getting the real Annie Hall or are we getting Alvy Singer's idea of what of who Annie Hall was in their relationship? You know, I wonder. I, I think you're probably I think you're probably hitting on something. I, I think everything we see is his interpretation of the events. I mean, it has to and... be. He's so self-involved. <laughs> And I think, yeah, for sure. And I think that's where we, it's difficult to almost critique this movie, you know, because your enjoyment on it is dependent on whether or not you connect to this character, you know? Definitely. And I think as well, I just, at the end of the film, um, I did write down that the, I loved the last line that he talks about in referencing, you know, why do we keep trying at love? Oh, it's because for most of us, we need the eggs. And he's talking about, you know, he has a whole analogy about eggs and relationships. And I think it was a really cute button and a moment to end it on. I thought of that old joke, you know, the, this, this guy goes to a psychiatrist and says, Doc, uh, my brother's crazy. He thinks he's a chicken. And uh, the doctor says, well, why don't you turn him in? And the guy says, I would, but I need the eggs. Well, I guess that's pretty much now how I feel about relationships. You know, they're totally irrational and crazy and absurd. And But uh, I guess we keep going through it because uh, most of us need the eggs. But I just wish that he had come to a better conclusion after self-reflecting mm-hmm. because the whole idea that he's, you know, trying to go back and see what went wrong in the relationship, but he's only looking at Annie, Annie, what Annie did wrong. He's not mm-hmm. looking at himself. He's not realizing that the reason the relationship went so sour is because he is so insecure and he needed her attention to feel better. You yeah. know, he's not no, getting th- that. That is so... Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he's just not, he's not getting that. And I wish that's that's where the frustrating part comes in because there are so many parts where I, I mean the you know the meat of this movie is hilarious. We're going to talk about the construction of it because there's some really cool things that Woody Allen does in this movie. I mean, there's parts where he talks directly into the camera. There are scenes where you know he and Diane Keaton are having a conversation, and then he uses subtitles to reveal what they're actually thinking as they're saying their lines. And there's even scenes where he'll just walk up to random people on the street and ask them personal questions about his relationship. And for some reason, these extras seem to know exactly what's going on, and they give him their advice. It's very funny, and it's very clever. you know. So I think the style of this movie sort of distracts people and it can it can make it seem like this is a really it's a much deeper film than it actually is you know (laughs) i was i was thinking at at the end whenever we see him making a play out of the entire situation i was thinking Mm -hmm. like man i would love to watch the movie with that guy playing this character um uh but um (laughs) You know what I what movie I enjoy more that did this very similar concept? What's that? <laughs> I mean, like this is probably sacrilegious to say this to say that I prefer this movie, which came you know forty years later, but um or thirty something years later. But I really I think... like five five hundred days of summer. Oh yeah yeah yeah. There you go. Yeah definitely. Yeah. similar. Yeah very similar, but also Sim- like a way more modern approach to it where. He's actually looking at himself too, right? <laughs> yes, yes. That's the, for all of the 
analyzing it seems he's doing of himself in this i don't think he ever you know you're right he never thinks that there's anything about him that should change even though he yeah. is clear the most neurotic person you will ever i mean my god just life. that last scene where he finally he flies to california just to like ask her back and he's literally just like begging her as they're having their little date uh, out in the patio he's like begging her to come back to him like dude right there this is your answer you're the one who can't survive without her she mm-hmm. is living her life and thriving without you the issue mm-hmm. is you and he doesn't yeah. get that <laughs> but even in the way he presents how she's doing in her life makes it seem like she isn't stable the way that yes, he says he's it. constantly belittling her i mean he belittles her the entire time like the you way know? that he says She's back in New York. You know, it's like, oh, she couldn't make it in L.A. Ugh. You know, it's, I hate that. I hate that so much. Yeah, I, I hate, hate it too. It's disgusting. I hate, I hate men. That's really what I, hate. <laughs> I fucking hate men. <laughs> There's so much, like, straight white male about this that I don't yes. like. You know? Yes. I, I think that that's. And it doesn't it make sense as well that, like, I mean, here's a question for you. If this movie were to come out today, do you think the reaction would be very no. different? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't. Yeah, I I should say it would be different. I didn't mean to say no, it wouldn't be. I think it mm. would be different because I think that we would be more privy to all of the times up me too that's all over this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I have to think right? so, right? You know, so yeah. for 1977, I guess I can see you know none of that had come to light yet. It's it is it is hard trying to put yourself in a 1977 mindset when watching this movie. It's really hard, especially because, Mm -hmm. like, I was even reading a lot of think pieces that were written in the last two, three years about this movie, and the reaction is still very similar. People still praise this. They still think it's genius. It redefined comedy, and I don't know. I just think people are caught up in in wanting this movie to, to, like, hang on to its classic status instead of actually addressing the issues and and the issue that continuing to call this a classic is still having on our society today you know it hurts any progress we're making today by calling mm-hmm. this movie something to be remembered and looked back on positively and you know i have to say um i i really love Diane Keaton i just want to really yeah. just say that a few times oh yeah times she's a over. peach and a half yeah um, I absolutely love Diane Keaton. I think that she has given so many great performances, and she's such a fun, like, personality on top of all of that. But, mm-hmm. um, and so, like, a, a proud and in touch of with who she is as a person, and she's an absolute delight on Instagram, by the way. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I think that, um, I think that I actually, there are diane keaton performances i enjoy more because i think that i've seen films where she's really given more of a chance to be a complete person and i think that annie hall as great a character as she's able to define with the script i don't think the script gives annie hall a lot of room to create herself yeah you know because i think that we're looking at the interpretation of a very chauvinistic male Yup. Bingo. That's just that's just what I. That is my feeling, and and so I understand the innovativeness of the movie, but I don't want the innovation and the craftsmanship of this film, which 
are admittedly stellar Mm -hmm. to take away from the fact that it is pushing messages uh, messages is (laughs) 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 messages there we go um that are unhealthy and do nothing to move us forward bingo bingo point period uh yeah that's it that's the answer you know yeah which is upsetting do you think there's also a couple of homophobic jokes in there on top of everything there so (laughs) although i will say okay there is a moment in this movie that makes me laugh no matter what and it's toward the end when they're invited to the party and they're gonna do cocaine yes and woody (laughs) allen sneezes and the like five thousand dollars worth of cocaine goes flying everywhere every time that bit works that is it's a perfect bit. hilarious. So that I bit works. 100%. And there's a lot of other bits, too, that I, I have to admit. Like, there are a lot of funny moments, but exactly what you're saying. They don't Okay, real, over... real quick. Yeah. I, you know, Lottie Daw, of course, is the big line for <laughs> yeah. this. Um, did you... Okay. They're meet cute, which we get, you know, like tennis a third playing. of the way in. Yeah. Yeah, the tennis playing. Annie is so nervous around him. Oh, God, what a, what a dumb thing to say, right? I mean, you say it, you play well, and then right away, I have to say you play well. Oh, oh, God, Annie. Mm-hmm. Like, she is acting as if he is the be-all, end-all. That mm-hmm. alone confused me. Because by this point in the story, we already know he's not only, you know, neurotic, but he's also just, like... Uh, an incessant he's not somebody i think anyone any woman would be nervous in that way around and i think it's so interesting that he writes it that way because yeah that again that's probably alvi's interpretation of how she acted around him and not how she actually acted yes and that is what i think too you know because there are there are scenes where he's you know flashing back and remembering and then there are scenes in the present where he's trying to go and get her right Mm-hmm. And I think Annie acts differently in those scenes where we're seeing him through, yeah, right. We're seeing him through Woody's mind of like, oh, this this girl who's fawning over me, you know. And also like the fact that he writes himself as this famous comedian writer, you know. I wonder if like Annie Hall's character knew that Alvy Singer was this famous New York comedian. And maybe that's yeah. why she was a little nervous because he has these weird scenes throughout too where people just come up to him and are like, wait, are you Alvy Singer? I love you. You know, like a lot of those kinds of scenes where it's like, dude, you don't need to do this. <laughs> we, yeah, we, we, get like so we get it. We get it. You love yourself. So it is. self-important. It's like, it good Lord, if this guy, this guy had an Instagram, he'd have a new selfie every single day. And I yeah, say that I, as a yeah. proponent of selfies. Ah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) No, but I think it does go to show that just, again, like, all of, I think, our issues with the way the script is written Mm -hmm. only prove our point further that Mm -hmm. this character just doesn't get it. He doesn't, and it's like screaming at you in the face, like, the reason this didn't work is because you are a selfish asshole. But he refuses Mm -hmm. to acknowledge that, and that's why I think in the end he ends up alone, which was my favorite part of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I think the question is, I don't, I don't know if the movie real is is self aware exactly. enough to exactly. know exactly. It's not. That it's that's... an accident. Literally, it's an yes. accident. And and maybe we only understand that now because we're, you know, looking back on it. Maybe in 1977, that wasn't what people were getting from it. But I think now it's very obvious. 
you know, <laughs> that this is just a, a very self-involved um, uh, uh, guy who thinks he can do no wrong and he's not going to learn anything. Just like Woody Allen hasn't learned a damn thing in the last 40 years. Yeah, go watch Alan V. Farrow, everybody, on HBO, and yeah. uh, it will totally shift your perspective on him if you need any help. Um, yeah. I will also say, get ready, Manhattan's in two years. Um, uh, which is even grosser. Oh, God. <laughs> and we got like, lots of Oscar nominations we, to impact. We just look back at it now, like, how did we let Woody Allen get away with this? Like, Woody Allen has been telling us and showing us exactly who he is his entire time he's in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And it just, yeah. like, it really makes me sad and, like, sickens me that... But it makes sense that he came ab about when he did because it came about during this, you know, um, this period, post-68, when we had um, the, uh, the new wave of cinema coming through. Um, and it was a very male-dominated wave. Um where lots of ground was being broken. But I think that we are learning as we explore the movies from these years, just how much women were shut out of Ugh, this yeah. progression. We don't see a ton of movies that have female-driven characters. We don't see a ton of movies that have women just behind the scenes, in the room, making decisions. Yeah. We see all of these new wave um, auteurs coming through that are giving us a perspective of women as opposed to actually hearing the women's voices themselves. And yeah. um, and unfortunately, it'll be decades before we really even begin, begin to get to that point. I say begin because we literally are just now beginning to yeah. hear women in a way that is mainstream. And it's far, 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 far from being equal still. But I think yeah. the 70s in particular was this... I don't know, maybe it's a pushback of, uh, I, I mean, like, it's just interesting, like, how much, how much, uh, I, I think it's a pushback towards that second wave fem feminism that was happening during this time, and people re-embrace a certain type of, you know, familial structure after women start going to the workplace, and men's voices become dominant again, um, more so perhaps than they were for a little while. I mean, like, this is, it's so interesting. It's almost like men saying, like, look how independent we're letting women be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but we're still yeah. going to have a movie that's 75% men. <laughs> exactly. You know. Uh, anyway, I do, okay, I have, yeah. I have so many thoughts and opinions. Real briefly... We can't, like, skirt past this because it is 1977. I, I would say it's pretty clear neither one of us really want Annie Hall to be the Best Picture winner. Is that This fair? would be true. Yes, it's okay. very fair. Um, We also don't really think Goodbye Girl should be here. Okay. <laughs> no, Goodbye. Goodbye, um, Goodbye Girl. <laughs> uh, Turning Point didn't win a single Oscar for a reason, right? <laughs> yeah. And um, in spite of all the nominations... Uh, Close Encounters should be in the Best Picture race. Um, what do you think? Okay, so Star Wars is mammoth. Star yes. Wars literally changes cinema. We can't really talk yep. about 1977 without acknowledging the fact that Star Wars changes everything. Everything. Yes. Um, and for better or worse, Star Wars changes everything. Yep. And um, 
do you think, first of all, that this is the best of the Star Wars films? That is a great question. The answer is no. Mm-hmm. I don't think it is. Okay. I think the our next Empire one Strikes is Back. Empire Strikes Back would be, yes. yes. I would agree. Um, it does not get nominated for Best Picture, though. Um, yep, interestingly enough. Interestingly enough, even though it is the better, I think, of the movies. Uh, but Star Wars was the first of its kind, and nobody had seen anything like that. Even though right. I think Star Wars is in large part kind of in a, a, a conglomeration of different genres kind of hitting an apex, you know? Because mm-hmm. um, he took a lot of inspiration from old movie serials and uh, sci-fi films, and he made basically, George Lucas made a perfect version of that, if you will. Um, yeah. They're super fun. They're great movies. Uh, it's a it's the most successful franchise in history. Um but I don't think it's a best picture winner, personally. No, I agree with you. I don't think so either. So do we think Close Encounters should have been nominated and won? Is that where we are? <sighs> I mean, that is where I am. I Close Encounters of the Third Kind is my favorite Steven Spielberg movie. I mm-hmm. think it's his best. It's it is so personal. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's his first foray kind of into this sci-fi um, alien uh, obsession that Steven Spielberg really has. You know, what is out there? Is it worth seeing what's out there? Is that where we really belong? And this movie answers all those questions. And Steven Spielberg also talks a lot about how, about like the the family unit. You know, if you watch a lot of mm-hmm. his movies... A lot of them center around a family and the problems that go on within, you know, a lot of the times it's a single parent and, you know, the kids and they're, they're struggling to stay together. And this movie, I think, is the best example of that. A close second would be E.T., but I think this movie does it better because you get multiple families going through all their trials and tribulations. And it's it's this calling that they feel, you know, and this this calling in the movie is coming from, you know, space and the aliens. But I think it's a metaphor for really what your calling is in life. And sometimes you have to leave your, you have to leave like your constants, you know, you have to leave the world, you know, and get out of that comfort to discover who you are. And in doing so, it hurts a lot of people. And that's what you get in this movie, right? And from, yeah. like, weird dynamics. Like, in the case of Melinda Dillon and her son, it's it's the little boy who has to leave, and the mom doesn't know what to do. In the case of Richard Dreyfus and his family, it's the father of what seems like a really well-knit family. And as soon as he leaves, the whole family falls apart. Right. But they know what they have to do, right? And that's why the conclusion of this movie, when they when Richard Dreyfuss does go off with the aliens, it is so emotional. And the combination of that with the special effects of the spaceship and the aliens mixed with the music in this movie, which I think is Mm -hmm. one of John Williams' greatest scores Mm -hmm. of all time. It all comes together in that final moment, and it just... I'm getting goosebumps talking about it right now. I can't picture that scene without, like, shaking down my spine because it just lights up every sense my body has. It just fling! It's like boing, 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 boner. It is so well done. 
Yeah. And, and it's the best picture of the year. Definitely best picture of the year. And uh, might we say this is special effects that are just as strong as oh, what Star God. Wars is doing. And here's my thing. Like, I think it's And also, kind of... we can we can judge those special effects based on reality because um, the special effects we see in Close Encounters today when we watch it are the same that they were in 1977, unlike some movies which have been updated over and yes. over and over again to where we don't know what it looked like in 1977. <laughs> exactly. And the special effects in Close Encounters hold up. It's... Yeah. It's really, really good. And I love, I mean, we talked about Melinda Dillon, you know, back when we were talking about Bound for Glory. I oh, yeah, love Melinda Dillon, and she is fabulous in this movie. She would be my pick for Best Supporting Actress. The scene where we also, um, yeah, where her son, you know, gets kidnapped by the aliens, even though he wants to leave, is both heartbreaking and petrifying mm-hmm. petrifying with the orange light that's coming in as they're you know unscrewing Ugh. the the ducks as they're trying to sneak in and the, the 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 stove goes off and all these electronics start going weird it's horrifying and yeah. melinda like you know just watching melinda dillon's face and her performance in that scene it must have been so challenging to get to that emotional level however many hundreds of takes i'm sure they probably had to do during this scene so she's beautiful she's wonderful yeah and let's also stay here in addition to melinda melinda dillon you also get a rare screen screen performance from franco truffaut yes francois um, truffaut yes francois sorry i say names wrong so often (laughs) francois truffaut um the famed french director makes uh, an appearance as an actor in American film here, which is mm-hmm. uh, huge. Also, can I just say, Terry Garr had such a great 1970s, appeared in all these wonderful movies, and yes. including Young Frankenstein, but she gets to play Richard Dreyfuss's wife in this one. Um, oh, and she's so good. Yeah. Oh, I love Terry Garr and all things. Um, all the yeah. way up to I being think it's like mom. Yes, it's interesting because this really kind of did come down to, in a lot of the technical categories, it did come down to Close Encounters versus Star Wars. And I understand that Star Wars is probably the more revolutionary and original idea and, you know, production of the year. Uh, but, like, the it's, sound... It's a great movie. It should have been... It's editing. a great movie, and it should have been in that Best Picture race. That's the thing that's... Yeah. You know, I think of the nominees that are there, you know... I mean, it's it's funny. I don't think Julia is a Best Picture winner, but of the nominees, that's probably the best movie for me. You know, mm. yeah. But it's not. But but you're right. It should be. It should be Close Encounters. It should be in that conversation. Also interesting. I don't really care that much about Saturday Night Fever, but it's interesting that it didn't get more love than it did, considering what a huge hit it was. You know. Um, yeah, especially just, in like the original song category. Didn't did the Bee Gees write those songs just for the movie, or were they already out before? I'm wondering why. Like, I don't think so. I, I like thought why it was... didn't any of those pop up? <laughs> it just seems kind of weird to me. I, that is weird because that is such a huge. I mean, it's one of like the highest selling um, soundtracks of all time. You know? Oh yeah, the music in that movie is just that is yeah. so bizarre. I hadn't, I didn't even notice until just now. That yeah, it isn't. It doesn't get any music nominations at all. Um, yeah. I, it looks like the only major nomination it got was for John Travolta. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Which is interesting because it was such a, I mean, it was a huge, huge, huge movie. Very interesting. Um, you just got to wonder, did Scientology pay for that nomination? I wonder. I don't know. Oh, my it God. Makes you think. You know, um, <laughs> ABC is mad at me for disparaging the the current, uh, the 2021 Oscar ceremony, and now Scientology is after you. This They're is... after me. <laughs> um. What are well, we me and Leah Remini. They're after us both. You and Leah Remini. <laughs> yes, you'll be on her show before you know it. Um, oh, okay. So, um, let's, uh, let, we got, this was an extra long episode. I hope you guys enjoyed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we, we had to we go literally off. Spent, we went 30 minutes off on Annie Hall. So, <laughs> um, this is, uh, we, we're so excited to announce what we're doing over the next two weeks. Um, yes, yes, yes. So, uh, we uh, this was the 50th annual Academy Awards. That means that we have been through 50 years of Oscar, and oh you guys know that we love to rank our movies. And <laughs> so we are going to rank every single Best Picture winner up to this point over two episodes over the next two mm-hmm. weeks. So we'll do the first half of our individual list, my list and Sam's list. Um, so I'll give. There are technically 51 Best Picture winners at this point. Um, right. by the, by our count so we'll do 51 through 26 next week and then we'll do 25 through one the following week mm-hmm. and um the really fun part about this is for the last year sam and i have been recording um in two different spaces because uh of covid19 well now both sam and i are fully vaccinated and next week we will be doing um our first episode together in the same place in yes. over a year which is so ah, exciting that is so exciting oh my gosh ah. yeah i i can't wait i'm very very excited i you know we love to rank these films i'm really mm-hmm. curious to see if maybe you know some of your rankings have changed you know since we've just done the decades in the past since we're combining all the decades now i'm really curious to see where you're gonna toss some of these movies so um, yeah and i i can't wait I've, I've kept up kind of a running list knowing that we would be doing this and I have mm-hmm. moved things around particularly towards the bottom and the top of the list on yes. multiple occasions because I discover as the years go by uh, some uh, like on reflection I I think certain things are more important or less important and yep 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 um, anyway so it'll be interesting to see where we land Absolutely. So join us next week, everybody, as we give you the first half of our 50th anniversary special.